Uh, his Wikipedia article seems to imply Anglican. Oh uh, well, that's the same. That's that, that's liberal Protestant. So, <laughs> is Anglican uh, theology more liberal? Anglican? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. Very, very. Um, they. Oh, what have they done recently? Um, well, they let the king divorce. <laughs> <laughs> what have they done recently? <laughs> Damn it! Was Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of The Problem with Reading. I have with me Sam. Hey there. And Stephen. Hi, everyone. And uh, the big news from Sam's corner is that he now owns a copy of After Virtue, so no more will he be allowed to skate by and just comment on things without having to slog through McIntyre's, uh, uh, what would you even call those? Just like massive... Dense prose, massive comma abuse, just inset phrase within an inset phrase. It's yeah. No, I mean it's it's pretty nice to actually be reading it. Um, reading a summary and pretending to read it is honestly harder than just reading the actual text, which is saying something because he does not seem to understand how to end sentences. You see, that's how he shows us how much better he is than us is by making his sentences as complex and ir- irreducible as possible. Oh no! Well, you've you've heard the story about like Foucault talking to Richard Rorty or whatever, you know, analytical sort of philosopher, British or American, and then Foucault being uh, uh, French. And the whole conversation was Rorty asking Foucault like, "Why?" I'm pretty sure I I'm I hope that I'm not making this story up, uh, but asking him why his books were so long and why they were so dense and why there were just all these random tangents. And he was like, "Well, if the with the French, if you don't just have like so much nonsense in there to make it almost incomprehensible, then they don't take you seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of, um, it's an article I brought up, uh, I think our first or second session, but uh, George Orwell's Politics in the English Language uh, goes into that quite a bit. Remember that one. Yeah, that sounds like something a professor of mine has always said about um, Heidegger is he talks about when he first tried to read Heidegger and he went to his professor and was like, it seems like it doesn't matter whether I start at the beginning, middle, or end. It makes the same amount of sense. And the professor said, that's right. You're finally getting it. <laughs> I, I have a roommate who is obsessed with Heidegger, like absolutely loves him. And whenever he starts talking about Heidegger, I, I kind of quickly fall into nodding and not really understanding exactly what he's talking about, which I understand is quite the common response to an initial introduction to Heidegger. Mm. Well, see... I feel like people like you who don't understand Heidegger like I do, you're really enmeshed in, you know, being for itself as opposed to being being in itself, uh, which, of course, you know, is just a subset of Dizon. Um, anyway, so, you know, yeah, like, yeah, I understand where you're at. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. Being in itself, being, being, man. No, no, being, yeah. being for itself in being qua Dizon is uh, what you really are getting at. Precisely. Uh, and uh, speaking of being precise uh uh sam uh what are you drinking i am drinking some earl gray tea right now um and this is actually not a count or um, no just an earl perhaps a duke nope not duke gray earl gray um it's very good perhaps a little oversteeped no not a duchess an earl but it's good i actually this is a substitute drink because this morning i made myself a mug of uh it was 
orange dark chocolate hot cocoa. And that was delicious. And I finished that about a half hour before we had to start recording. And I didn't really want to make another mug. So I'm settling for tea. See, oddly enough, I was actually going to go with uh, hot chocolate as well. But I ended up going with uh, coffee with milk. With milk, not cream? Uh, yeah, we're out of cream at the house. So I just grabbed some milk and tossed it in. And it, it, it tastes all right. I think I would prefer cream. But hey, you know, in these, uh, these hard times with snow abounding in the Seattle area, got to make do with what you have. We got to scrape by. You do. You're a barbarian. If, mm-hmm. if, wait, hold on. Is it whole milk or uh, or uh, water with a few drops of milk in it, aka skim milk? It's uh, it's somewhere in between two uh, percent, which mm. is better than blue water, but worse than whole milk for sure. Yeah, so if you want cream. So you're like uh, you're like the petty bourgeoisie. So like when we come for um, uh, the people who drink skim milk, uh, you'll be like the last person to go. Because, you know, you're yeah, like, no, okay. I, pre- I appreciate that. Like, put me at the end of the line for the guillotine. Or actually, really, when you think about it, I wouldn't mind being the first because then the blade is still sharp. I don't have to mm. wait. I'm not bored in line. And I'm also the first to go. So could you actually reverse that? Could I be the first in line? And also it doesn't smell bad when they put you down exactly. there. Exactly. You got to look at the positives. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the uh, the combined horror of waiting for your death and also having to be in a queue? That's just awful. (laughs) 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 Kafka, yeah, it also sounds like, well, it's just another version of a punishment. And one of the best punishments was uh, uh, that the English had was sending people to Australia. Uh, And Australia is uh, the place where what I'm drinking is from, which is a uh, nice non-alcoholic Bundaberg ginger beer. And it's absolutely delicious it comes in like a little sort of brown glass bottle it fits just right into the palm of your hand it's uh 12.7 fluid ounces of uh pure joy sounds excellent australia good place yeah yeah uh, aside from the fact that all the animals are designed to kill humans it's like that movie after earth but it's earth now um, it's actual earth yeah, when I when I went there for the wedding of a friend, I was told the number one thing not to do is go in the rivers or anywhere near the ocean. And so the first thing my friend did with me when when I got there is we took a couple of paddle boards and went out into a river that led right into the ocean. <laughs> I was I, I've never been so or maybe maybe a few times, but like I seriously like in the back of my head, it never left like I'm actually somewhat playing with fire right now. Like an animal could come up and kill me right now and there wouldn't be much i could do about it and it would be part of the natural order it would be completely permissible and just Mm, yes the alligator or crocodile or whatever it is would just be performing the virtues of alligator crocodile or whatever it is my uh uh cellmate at work is a uh guy who he worked in australia for a couple months before he has the job that he is now and uh he was talking about australians are great because it's you know like a beach that has huge signs like alligators or crocodiles or whatever uh watch out and then they're like oh yeah let's just go in the water mate it's like but no but there's crocodiles oh no yeah but they're down at the other end of the beach don't worry about it and uh <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right <laughs> um and speaking of uh right and and wrong and whether or not they exist or or not uh steven i believe you have a summary of a uh, mcintyre chapter nine for us I do indeed. McIntyre chapter nine, Nietzsche or Aristotle, a pretty uh, big dichotomy there and one that McIntyre explores quite a bit. So in this chapter, he opens up with a callback to Max Weber, the German sociologist who provides the sociological expression of emotivism. If you'll recall back to the discussion on um, the bureaucrat, Weber does a lot of work with that. McIntyre claims that, quote, the contemporary vision of the world is predominantly, although not perhaps always in detail, Weberian. 
uh, end quote. He addresses two critiques on this claim. First, that the liberal view would claim that there is no one central vision of the world, that, but that it is irreducibly plural. The second being that socialists would claim that the vision is Marxist. Quote, to the former, I will reply that belief in an irreducible plurality of values is itself an insistent and central Weberian theme. And to the latter, I will say that as Marxists organize and move towards power, they always do and have become Weberians in substance, even if they remain Marxist in rhetoric. For in our culture, we know of no organized movements towards power, which is not bureaucratic and managerial in mode, and we know of no justifications for authority, which are not Weberian in form. All power tends to co-opt, and absolute power co-ops absolutely. Uh, End quote. If Weber really is the zeitgeist of our power structures, then who is the zeitgeist of her philosophy? If Weber is right, then our discourse is only a matter of will and power. And so the answer would appear to be Nietzsche, whose disgust with the state of moral utterances in post-enlightenment early motivist times sought to do away with the whole of the system. McIntyre, wishing to display how easy it was to do away with the ghost of moral utterances by examining the origin of the word taboo. Captain Cook and his fellow Englishmen encountered Polynesian natives in the early 1800s, and these natives had paradoxically very loose sexual norms and very rigid social norms of men and women eating together. When asked about this, the natives would simply reply with the word taboo. Uh, There was seeming no reason for it, it just wasn't done. Uh, and the surprising thing is within 40 years, the taboos were abolished by Kamehameha II with shocking ease. McIntyre's claim is that the society had lost any sort of reasoning for why this was done. The background beliefs were forgotten, and therefore all that was left was the practice. The parallel is clear. Quote, but had the Polynesian culture enjoyed the blessings of analytical philosophy, it is all too clear that the question of the meaning of taboo could have been resolved in a number of ways. Taboo, it would have been said by one party, is clearly the name of non-natural property. And precisely the same reasoning which led Moore to see good as the name of such a property and Pritchard and Ross to see obligatory and right as the names of such properties would have been available to show that taboo is the name of such a property. Another party would doubtless have argued that, quote, this is taboo means roughly the same as, quote, I disapprove of this, do so as well. And the whole quote. He highlights, quote, there is no way to understand the character of taboo rules except as a survival from these or from some previous more elaborate cultural background, end quote. And just as Kamehameha II easily got rid of taboos, so Nietzsche loosened us from a morality we no longer understood. In the gay science, Nietzsche pretty easily, according to McIntyre, dispensed with the idea of basing morality on sentiments, conscious, or Kant's categorical imperative. Apparently, he, quote, jeered at them. Having demolished whatever structure of morality the Enlightenment left standing, Nietzsche moves on to examine what follows, uh, finding, quote, if there's nothing to morality but expressions of the will, my morality can only be what my will creates, uh, end quote. If our society is Weberian, and Weberian pre- er, and Weber presupposes Nietzsche's moral philosophy, then truly Nietzsche is the philosopher of our time. He buffers this claim by briefly examining the sociology of Irving Goffman, uh, he being McIntyre in this case, which he claims is a counterpart to Nietzsche and Weber. His sociology of human interaction is decisively emotivist. Uh, he claims that, quote, the individual role player is striving to affect his will within a role structure role-structured situation. The goal of the Goffman-esque role player is effectiveness and success in and success in Goffman's social universe is nothing but what passes for success. There is nothing else to, for it to be. For Goffman's world is empty of objective standards of achievement. It's, it is so defined that there is no cultural or social space from which appeal to such standards can be made, end quote. Later, quote, Because success is whatever passes for success, it is in the regard of others that I prosper or fail to prosper. 
hence the importance of presentation as a, or perhaps the, central theme, uh, end quote. He goes on to discuss the philosopher who came before all of this, Aristotle, who considered Goffman's thesis thousands of years before he came into being and rejected it. Quote, we honor others, he says, in virtue of something that they are or have done to merit honor. Honor cannot therefore be at best more than secondary good, end quote. Uh, one thing to, to note, honor in Aristotle's time was what was due. The act of dishonor was, act, was the act of failing to acknowledge what was due. Uh, McIntyre proceeds to wrap up the chapter by considering that Nietzsche's moral philosophy is the equal opposite of Aristotle's. It is, it is the summation of the failure of the Enlightenment project of rationalizing morality, the project beginning with a rejection of Aristotle. To accept Nietzsche is to claim that it was correct to reject Aristotle, to reject is to claim that it was not correct. Quote, if a pre-modern view of morals and politics is to be vindicated against morality, it will be something like Aristotelian terms or not at all, end quote. He turns to discuss what led up to Aristotle in a tribute to Nietzsche by exploring the Homeric hero of the Iliad, whom Nietzsche saw himself as the last inheritor. Uh, to uh, explore the Homeric hero, though, we will have to wait for next week. So, uh, pop quiz, though. Of the uh, heroes in the Iliad, uh, who is your favorite? Uh, you know, we have... Odysseus, uh, Achilles, Hector, uh, you know, the fun, yeah. I'm reading through it right now, or book on, book on tape, I should say, and man, like, they're all, they're all kind of cool, and they're all kind of terrible. Like, the, Homer, the Homeric hero is very different than our form of a hero, and, like, especially just given that back then that it was not considered a vice to be a braggart or to be full of yourself or whatever, as long as you kind of deserved it. And so even <laughs> the heroes... They're just all so freaking conceited. But I mean, Achilles, as as annoying as he is, as cocky as, as he is, and how as wrathful as he is, man, like you can't help but kind of root for him. I would say out of all the Homeric heroes when I read the Iliad last, which was a couple of years ago, Hector resonated with me quite a bit. And I think it was because he seemed to be the most human hero out of all of them, uh, particularly that bit in, what is it, book six? Um, on the on the walls of Troy. I'm just mad that you know that. Sorry, you took the same class I did. <laughs> <laughs> You're making us look bad. <laughs> I, so I have a friend who uh, apparently for a while was huge into classical Greek to the point where he he studied a lot of the language. He would read all the the classics and whatnot. And apparently he was telling me he was kind of breaking down the first sentence of the Iliad and saying how. It's considered one of the most beautiful sentences to have ever been written and kind of how how it, it somehow encapsulates the entire epic all within the one sentence, which I thought was a kind of a cool thing. I mean, so my favorite character would be Odysseus, uh, but the runner up probably has to be uh, Aeneas, who doesn't really do anything, but then because the Romans just wanted to appropriate stuff, just gets this like whole spinoff novel written about him. Um, and, and, and it's like, that's the way to go. Be like a minor side character, but you know, get your, get, you know, get, it's the, uh, it's like a breaking bad and, and Achilles is, is the main character. And then you have better call Saul, just like the side character. No, <laughs> it's, yes, it's always comforting to hear that man, you really never changes. <laughs> but back on topic, uh, uh, after virtue chapter nine, McIntyre, McIntyre. Yeah. McIntyre. Uh, yeah, you know, the big pushback I have to this chapter, I think that he makes a, a lot of good points, but I, I, my biggest pushback is the false dichotomy that he lands on at the end, or at least what I see as a false dichotomy, is he's basically like, you've got Aristotle and you've got Nietzsche, and there's nothing in between. And I think that there's definitely a lot in between. I think that they are 
that the in-between um, systems may be inferior to one of those systems, but they can still be a holistic system that can function. For example, a combination of uh, Thomistic and Lockean uh, theories to form kind of a patchwork um, social theory. I think you can get a lot of places with that. Um, and he completely excludes any kind of Christian ethics from the picture, which come after Aristotle and appropriate Aristotle later. So two responses. First, to the Christianity, or to Aristotle excluding Christianity. So he he's going to say in future writings as well that the Thomistic upgrading of Aristotle completes it, that Aristotle was incomplete before that. So he doesn't see a contradiction. His Aristotelian ethic is really a Christian Aristotelian one, and that it's just the the natural extension of it. In regards to the two camps, and you know where do we have to be between? I would say that I don't think that there is a it's it, it's difficult because McIntyre is primarily discussing the field of ethics, but he's dis, but he's also talking about society as a whole and in a sociological method as well. So like when you bring in Weber, you're instantly talking about social organization. You're not just talking about ethics anymore. So, you know, w- Weber wrote about everything. So when you pull Weber into it, you can tie him to Sure, but Weber's literally Weber, a subject. But 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 Weber on bureaucrats. But but what I'm saying is like when you're talking about combining, you know, Christian Aristotle and Locke for social or- organization, my first instinct is that's not his project and you know, you might maybe Lockean um principles as articulated in one form or another, you know, connected to natural law, blah, 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 might be a fine social system, but that doesn't, that's not, that's a a categorical error to talk about it in the same conversation as are we between Nietzsche and Aristotle? Because what you're really asking is how do you justify things? What's behind it ultimately? And I think in the Lockean system, you want to, uh, or you would want to defend, it would be in, in terms of natural law and it would be in something closer to the Aristotelian ethic that he wants and not in the appeal to effectiveness, which collapses to a will to power that mm-hmm. you could argue that your traditional libertarian art arguing for Lockean ethics would fall into. So what you're asking is, does Aristotle uh, walk in lockstep with Locke? Dead silence because it was just so good. <laughs> That's what I thought. No, I think you're right. I, I mean, that, I, that, I that might be have... the error. Oh, pardon me? Oh, no. Brevin, I think you're right there that... Yeah, he, he's just dealing with ethics, and you can theoretically make that dichotomy with ethics. I guess me, being more politically minded, would want to see it kind of parse through on the actual social systems. He walks into this, too, because he talks about that you can't do ethics and philosophy without doing sociology at the same time. And his project is just fundamentally connected to political questions, because he's suggesting that you know the entire political edifice that we built is wrong. But I, I do, I think, get your... Fr- get your frustration at the dichotomy that he's creating the like on page 112 just that that second paragraph he's talking about um the taboo and when they work and when they don't and the point that he sort of just mentioned sort of briefly and goes through but that appears that has appeared at in several different places i guess what i'm trying to say is part of mcintyre's argument seems to be indistinguishable from the following phrase which is that we'll fight less and agree on philosophy if we agreed on philosophy. Sorry, can you break that down one more time? Part of what frustrates me about McIntyre's argument, and there's another little instance of it on 112 where he where he talks about, uh, quote, in such a situation where the rules have been deprived of any status that can secure their authority, and if they do not acquire some new status quickly, both their 
interpretation and their justification become debatable when the resources of a culture are too meager to carry through the task of reinterpretation the task of justification becomes impossible end quote and that's analogous to aristotelian ethics falling off the table just like the taboo system fell off the table and so at some point it seems that his argument is hard to distinguish between just saying people would fight less and agree about philosophy if people fought less because they agreed about philosophy. Well, I see, I'm not sure if that's exactly, or I, I, I don't think that that's a good representation of what he's saying. It, it sounds more like he's saying people would be able to go about the discussion of philosophy if they had the cultural background that would enable them to have maybe a broader tool set or a better context to have those philosophical conversations in. But once you forget the context of particular rules, taboos, norms, or whatever, you once you forget the context, you you lose the tool set. And once you lose the tool set, it's only a matter of time until you lose the justification, or at the very least, the ability to reinterpret and therefore the justification. So uh, to bring uh, it back to Sam's point, I do very much agree um, that it is somewhat frustrating. I, I even wrote it down um, that he, he cites the tenacity of Aristotle's thought um, and uses that as justification for how you know how great of a moral system it is. And to be fair, it is. Uh, and he cites the fact that the Enlightenment kind of rejected Aristotle and therefore, and it led to Nietzsche. So you really have the only choice. I do wish he had addressed at least some non-Western modes of ethics, um, either Near Eastern or Far Eastern, something like that, because Aristotle, he didn't bleed over into India, China, Japan, what have you. I wish he would at least have discussed maybe some alternatives in a system that's completely uh, ignorant of Nietzsche, Aristotle, the Enlightenment, etc. Well, yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking when he was talking about Nietzsche is he is he articulated Nietzsche's position, and he said this is the modern position. But there are several different ways to interpret Nietzsche, and one of the more innovative ones that I've seen is exactly that: is reinterpreting Nietzsche through Christian values. Um, Wolf, Yosef Wolf, I think is his name, is a theologian who does this project, and he basically says that because we can have no we can't rationalize our way to ethics and we can't rationally arrive at a morality that the only thing that we can do is the non-rational phenomenon of radical love. And that by following that perspective laid out in the gospel, you can actually reach a system of ethics, a non-formalized system of ethics that leads to the betterment of society. Is, is and that Nietzsche or is that Kier That's a uh, Wolf kind of working. He works with Nietzsche. He, he actually oh, sorry, cites Nietzsche. Asking, uh, if he's working with Nietzsche or, or Kierkegaard. Yeah, he cites Nietzsche more than Kierkegaard, which is very interesting. And I need to reread that book. Um, oh, man, I'm, I'm spacing on the name of the book. But no, it's very good. I just don't understand why all these theologians uh, like Wolf and Bart and Kierkegaard just don't understand that the Thomas got it right the first time. This is just so self-evident. I don't understand why we have to keep having these conversations. I think uh, McIntyre became Catholic uh, after his introduction to um, Thomas Aquinas. I, I don't think oh, yeah. he was actually Catholic when he wrote After Virtue. I'll, I'll have to look really? that up to confirm. Yeah. No, yeah, McIntyre's a, a Thomas now. Oh, yeah. huh. I would be interested in reading his current writings then to see how he changed, if he changed. I found the book, though. It's Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Wolf. I like how you just threw in a Josef Wolf. Just like well, I wasn't sure what it was. It was it was it, I couldn't remember his first name. I thought it was something. Sorry, with a Y, but no, it does not. Well, uh, I was just going to say, how is how is Wolf then distinct from just some you know form of arbitrary happy nihilism? 
Well, I mean, that was kind of my initial argument when I read the book a couple um, last year. It was last, yeah, last year was that there's no objective standard, and that's why I think that when forced to choose between Nietzsche and um, and Aristotle, like McIntyre's forcing um, his reader to do, I would go back to Aristotle. I, I don't know. I guess like um, what Wolf is doing is he's the, the the outcome, the way that you actually play out his moral system looks very different than any other interpretation of Nietzsche. Does that make sense? This this strikes me as parallel to McIntyre's discussion on, I think it was chapter three or four, on kind of retracing um, where a lot of the Enlightenment project kind of started falling apart. And when he discussed uh, Kierkegaard's radical choice in that you can choose the aesthetic or the ethical, it, just, it strikes me that Wolf is not saying you have to make a choice between the aesthetic and the ethic, uh, but you have a myriad of choices, way more than two, that you just have to kind of radically choose and hope for the best. Is that a correct interpretation of that, or am I misunderstanding? That would, I think, be a correct interpretation, um, and that he would say that radically choosing with some kind of non-formalized but concrete standard presented in the gospel is a better option than trying to use some enlightenment system. Um, which which may lead to something such as genocide. Um, he goes back to that example a lot. But luckily for us, uh, we don't have to go to an Enlightenment system for our morality. We can go to a pre-Enlightenment system, which just loops right back around to the Thomas always being right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all that uh, aside, I, I, I think we've uh, exhausted Chapter 9. There are zero more things that we could say about it. Um, there's not a Obviously. single Super additional trivial. comment. Yeah, absolutely trivial. There's, there's nothing we can do. Um, uh, but you know, sometimes we do read things other than than McIntyre. And uh, Stephen, I think you read something pretty interesting. I did read something pretty interesting. I stumbled upon this article, uh, "The Nervous Laughter of the Super Bowl's Robot Ads" by Will Oremus. Uh, it came out uh, just a few days ago, in, in the wake of the Super Bowl, uh, obviously. Uh, I can't say that I had the pleasure of viewing Super Bowl or the ads, but apparently there were quite a few. Um, ads that featured robots or artificial intelligence of some kind. And uh, I'm looking at now uh, no fewer than six commercials. Um, and all of these, it was some sort of uh, either context dialogue uh, interaction between a robot or an AI and a human. And there was some sort of comparison implied between the robot and the human. And uh, there's there's this nervous laughter that kind of comes with it as the article entails. There's this idea that we're kind of seeing the possibility, the very distinct possibility, in fact, some would argue inevitable possibility of robots replacing our jobs, of robots kind of starting to do the last grand displacement of humans. Um, so people would you know, look to uh, Galileo as displacing us from the center of the universe, and they would look to Darwin for displacing us as the you know uh you know unique uh creation or what have you that we're just another animal and then robots would be the kind of last like okay now you're conscious you are self-aware and you are able to do all these sorts of things that none of our own creations can do and there's there's this terrifying idea that robots will be able to do everything that we can do and these commercials are kind of trying to imply that there are stuff that you know robots will never be able to do that we can and which i'm somewhat inclined to agree with but still it's this very well i keep saying it but this very nervous chuckle that is given that i think is definitely worth a wider 
discussion around, um, I've, I've heard it proposed that computer scientists need to start taking things um, similar to the Hippocratic Oath. Um, and I'd be definitely inclined, inclined to agree because we are messing, messing with forces that could very well lead to massive job displacement because now we have programmable robots that, that do everything for us. The ethics around um, artificial intelligence um, and you know strong versus weak and whatnot. And I, I think this article does a good job at least starting to kind of give voice to the concern that maybe our nervous laughter should stop being laughter and should just simply start being nerves. Yeah, no, it, it was very funny. As when when my friends and I were watching the Super Bowl, we also noticed that there was a huge prominence of uh, robot ads. And one friend of mine who was watching the Super Bowl with me actually um, is doing a lot of research into the ethics of AI. And so every time a an ad will come on, we kind of look at her like, "Okay, you're going to fix this, right?" <laughs> Has she fixed it yet? No, she has not. I don't know. I mean, I just think that uh, if if robots can will to power better than we can, then you know they're they're welcome to it. All we have to do is program a purely Nietzschean robot, and everything will do will go grandly. Yes, grandly. is that a word? I'm not sure if grandly is a word. Things will go grandly. Um, it is uh, now. I yep, have. I started. It, it is my will that grandly is now a word. Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, we may have created. Uh, new words, but uh, we also have to keep creating new content. Uh, hey, hey, Sam, uh, what what article do you have? Well, my article I discovered this morning while I was reading the uh, perusing, actually, the Wall Street Journal opinions pages. As one um, does, you just peruse it, just like a like a normal person does that. Everyone does that, right? Normal human yeah. person with two arms and two legs. <laughs> well, maybe. This article actually contends we might not be. It's called Physics, Biology, and Economic Inequality by um, J. Peter Zane. We don't get his first name. Uh, and he's interviewing Adrian Bajan, who's a uh, physicist. So it's mostly um, Bajan's words. And he's got a very interesting theory here. He basically starts the stance that nature is completely predictable, that tree-like shapes are abounding in nature. And this is common knowledge. You know, you, the everything's shaped like trees. The trees, obviously, but also our bloodstreams, lightning. You know, the, these shapes persist throughout nature, and there's consistent patterns. And so he formulated what he calls construct constructal law, not constructual, but constructal, which is basically quote: for a finite flow system to persist in time, it must evolve with freedom in such a way that it provides easier access to the imposed currents that flow through it. So for example, as things flow through, or as rainwater flows across a surface, it will form a pattern of streams. That's also consistent with the most effective method of distributing nutrients to the body, and it's consistent with the most effective um, pattern for electrons leaving the surface of the Earth in lightning. And so he similarly kind of comments on how we're being displaced where he says that if Darwin knocked humans off our pedestal by suggesting that we're not different from mon monkeys, constructual law teaches us that we're not much different from trees or rivers. So that's pretty sad. He's not religious. I know that this argument has been used a lot in religious communities to say, you know, look at this grand design. And that's where I would take it as a Christian. But he says that that's just the way things are. His response is actually pretty disappointing, where he says, it quote, it just does, which is why it is by law, a property of nature. So. Well, do you know what I hear in a uh, thing being a certain way and moving towards a certain end? Uh, that sounds just a little bit like teleology. It does. Yeah. He's an Aristotelian. <laughs> he's, a, he's a stealth Aristotelian. Uh, 
No, but he is um, partially. I don't, I, well, basically, he, he goes on to apply this to human systems. So he looks at human designs. You know, highways are following this consistent pattern. And he talks about how lots of writers, popular writers, touch on these ideas like Pinker from a couple of weeks ago. Brevin, you read an article by him. Jordan Peterson talks about this, basically saying that we need to go along with the flow and go, go along with the natural flow of things. And that's just the way things should be which is, I, I, I think, fairly Aristotelian. He says that the primary condition of the universe is a few large movers with many small ones, which is kind of what you could see in a lot of those visual systems. But then he goes on to say that, therefore, hierarchy is natural, and equality violates nature. Basically, human organization should be, organ- or should be, should be modeled after this, in a very hierarchical system. No, that sounds like Weber. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it is, where you know, the central authority does have a will of its own and should be controlling and able to exercise autonomy. That's that's vapor, right? I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. And he goes on to economics. He talks about how economics and the, the movement of wealth around the, the world is is just like this, um, where you have a lot of small movers moving things around for the benefit of a few. And then he concludes by saying that we can actually solve inequality realistically, that if we accept this premise that we could actually take steps to actually solving inequality and actually benefiting the poor. Because instead of just trying to give things to the poor and implement unsuccessful policies, we can focus on connecting the poor pockets and the slower moving um, islands to this big flow architecture and actually model our civilization after that in line with how the universe is designed. What the article really reminded me of is writers like Hotnik and the information problem and just like the knowledge of the full system is distributed so widely, um, you know, and then and then ranks up to make decisions on greater and, and greater levels. But those are carried out on the very small level. And that's where it essentially is. You know, uh, you can talk about the theory of the firm here, but that sort of strong exercises of will and power at the top are extremely disruptive and generally unhelpful, which is where I think he's he's getting at that. But he's coming at it from the side of uh of physics as opposed to um, ethics mm-hmm. or uh, information theory. Yeah, and he specifically says that. Is he just says, I'm not trying to make an argument about justice or politics. I'm just looking at this from from the perspective of physics. I mean, and the, yeah, and the other half or the other part of his view is because he's trying to do sort of a looking at it from the side of physics, you could also put this in with Thomas Sowell and talking about a constrained versus unconstrained vision, where he's like, given these constraints that we have on how energy moves and how information moves in a system, let's find out how, how we can work with that as opposed to always trying to act against it. You have to take advantage of what you... On the one hand, he's a, phys- he's a physicist and he, he has constructed a field. So part of me wants to say when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail when he's applying this idea to economics. But on the other hand, it does have a very surprisingly large amount of explanatory power. And I Mm -hmm. very much like the idea also of applying an actual science, sorry, sociologists and uh, psychologists, but applying a a hard science uh, to the more soft sciences of such as uh, um, sociology and psychology and whatnot. I do think there is the the danger, though, of more or less what you said, um, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, or just people mm-hmm. who have one big idea and just want to apply it to everything. Uh, and, and you can see that with lots and lots of different people. Um, and sometimes that can be really cool. Uh, I Actually, this guy reminded me a lot of Michael Polanyi. Um, oh, yeah. I was thinking that, about that when I was reading it. 
yeah, yeah, that sort of uh, extensive knowledge in numerous fields um, that they all combine into one sort of theory of everything. You could also talk about E.O. Wilson here, um, The Consilience of Knowledge, where he explains all art, literature, science, ethics, and religion in one, you know, 300-page volume. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, like, helpful sometimes, but also you have to be careful with it. Um, and you know what else you have to be careful with? Uh, uh, it's your, it's your bodies. Uh, it's, uh, it's sexuality. And, uh, that's, that's my Oof. article of the Oof. week, um, which is, uh, called, uh, inside the scam of the purity movement. Drum roll, please. Um, and surprisingly, the publisher of this article is cosmopolitan magazine. So I expect how to get props. How, how, <laughs> how far we've sunk, but I also expect to get props here for my, uh, eclectic reading. Um, you know, that I don't just stick with, uh, a few of my favorite magazines. Did you come across this in your morningly uh, Cosmopolitan reading? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, my I journal of Cosmopolitan. I was just taking a quiz on what kind of sexy cucumber are you, and I came across this article, and I was like, wow, this seems, you know, it's it's not quite as good as uh, as uh, tips for my nails and eyelashes, but you know, it, this is, you know, it's not bad. So this article dovetails into some other articles that I've been reading on on similar topics because with me too as a as a movement and just other ins and other high profile incidents it's sort of in the waters of conversation and this is one angle at that at the whole affair of uh how do we do the sex and relationships that we still haven't figured out after several thousand years and the instance which this talks about is that of josh harris and his book i kiss dating goodbye uh in particular although it touches a little bit on the purity movement as a whole and in large part, I think the some, the semi-public failure of Harris's project, and you know, he has since asked that the book be not sold anymore. Uh, he cut printings of it, which seemed to be a, a good faith thing as he investigated the results of his advice and found, wow, this has actually hurt a lot of people and made a lot of lives very unhappy in different ways. Um, and it's been swept under the rug in many uh, ways I think it's just the fallout not quite dealt with. Um, it definitely still exists in undercurrents, it's just sort of in the Christian evangelical zeitgeist, let's say. And I like I remember my parents buying it, for example. Yeah, have you have you read the book? Yeah, I I it I, I was like 15, so I don't remember it terribly well, but I'm pretty sure that I did, or 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 they skimmed it. Okay, it was it was in my house, and my mom read it, and my and she was going to have me read it, and my dad uh, vetoed that. So. <laughs> You were saved. Um, and so this th this article has a very clickbaity headline, you know, inside the scam of the purity movement, bum, bum, bum. But it's surprisingly newsworthy and, and worth a read just for the little bit of take that it, it goes at. And, and this is a G-rated pod, so I'm not going to go into detail. Um, but there are a few things to note just for the context. Uh, Joshua Harris, who was the author of the um, book that's significant here, uh, you know, he promoted saving yourself for marriage. Uh, the audience was primarily evangelical Christians. The I Kiss Dating Goodbye was like a whole program on how to do on how to do courtship as opposed to dating. You know, you don't hang out with guys one on one. You don't kiss. You don't hold hands. Just you know, very sort of you could say strict, strict. Uh, I don't want to say chastity, abstinence. It's strict abstinence, not not chastity, which maybe we could say is a parallel but different concept that maybe an alternative and the sort of anecdotes that have come out of this, and as we know, the plural of anecdote is data, but has left many women, some of whom I, I, I know with, you know, different degrees of shame or anxiety or PTSD type symptoms is uh, what, what the article cites. And it's a very tricky 
question because it's the 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 angle of the book was definitely slanted towards women as opposed to men. It put demands on women that it did not place on men and expectations and was very bad because of that. But the difficult thing is that there's always the temptation and you know given that it's in Cosmopolitan and I can only guess what's on the next page of after this in the actual physical magazine is that the alternative often just seems to be oh, okay then let's make a 180 pivot to to Libertine City and you know that's that's Cosmo's answer. Um so anyway, I, I thought this was a worthwhile article just to look at sort of the disaster in in the wake of the book. Um, it, it, it also sort of is just an insight into a fascinating subgenre of literature, sort of the fad evangelical movement stuff, um, which I'm glad to have left behind. <laughs> You're not missing out much with that one. I I do I, I read through the article and I did enjoy it. Surprisingly well written for Cosmopolitan. Um, and discussing a rather important thing. It's the strange thing. Uh, when I was back home in Michigan um, over, I think it was Thanksgiving, uh, hung out with a friend and we were, we were talking about, uh, you know, the idea of kind of sex, sexual ethics within uh, Christianity. And we both kind of landed on the idea that, yes, while the Christian purity culture is just creepy and weird and oddly repressive, et cetera, et cetera, there is also something kind of wrong or that just kind of gut check feels wrong about just doing a complete 180 and like okay we'll go have casual sex or whatever or even like even maybe more formal sex uh it, it, there is i don't know there's there's something sublime about sexuality but sweet mercy especially the evangelical church but i think the christian church in general could probably stand to maybe chill out a little bit and realize that you know it's it's not the end of the world if one has sex outside of marriage it's it's sin it, it's it's wrong and you shouldn't do it but it's like any other sin like just you know repent and move on everyone just needs to uh get woke on uh uh saint jp2's theology of the body and i'm and, that, and that's not a joke go 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 look that up it's 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 great i'll look it up and stay woke fam yeah a bit in this article is at the end they they do actually call for Harris to go to change to be sex positive because Harris did issue a public apology and he had that documentary and everything. And, and I think the third, no, it's, it's, it's near the end, but one of the later paragraphs is talking about somebody who was hurt by his book. And she's basically saying that she's very angry because it seemed like his apology wasn't enough that, you know, he can say, I'm sorry and then go on living his life, but he still hurt people and he needs to actually shift and start helping people by being um, LGBT affirming and sex positive which yeah it's it's an intriguing thing the the desire to go from one extreme to the other um Mm -hmm. it does seem that the ability to nuance or what have you is somewhat lost at times with discussions like these but it's in cosmopolitan so (laughs) touche you find uh bastion of uh scholarism and academia yeah i mean and you know uh with this whole conversation it's it's almost as if the public landscape of ethics and morality is irrevocably shattered uh, in which various people attempt to will to power other people. You know, it's just will will to powering all over the place. You know what? It's actually just like a battle royale of will to power. It's like Nietzsche plus Fortnite plus uh, like sexual ethics. Isn't that a God thought? Save us. Almost as if Weber and Goffman and Nietzsche ruled the day with an iron fist of uh, so, uh, sociology and philosophy. It's almost as if it's almost as if Aristotle lost, or we Shut lost it. Aristotle. Mm. Oh wow, that was such a brilliant turn of phrase. It makes me want to rant. Uh, but I'm not first up, so uh, uh, Sam, I believe you have a have a rant for us. I don't really have a rant. Um, 
so much as just in um, a state of affairs. So I live in Seattle, and snowpocalypse is upon us out here. We uh, we're in there was a state of emergency declared last night. It is a crisis because we have five inches of snow on the ground. So I guess I say this for a couple of reasons: is that first of all, stay safe. Like the interesting thing about Seattle during the winter is nobody knows how to drive in the snow and the city infrastructure is simply not built up for snow. And so if you get more than an inch, everything shuts down. All um, public services, just all public services. It's, it's like the purge murder becomes legal. No, the best way I would describe it is um, I've, I've told a few people about this, but I was, I was driving home from work yesterday and I left right when it started snowing. And normally it's a 20 minute drive and it took me an hour and a half. And yeah. the way I would describe it was you know that scene in The Dark Knight where the Joker like tells everyone they've got a couple hours to get out of Gotham and everyone floods the highways and they lock up and everyone is still stuck in Gotham? That, that was, that was, that was um, Highway 99 yesterday. Mr. Wayne, some men just like to see the breeze. So that's where we're at. Um, you know, I've heard a couple different takes on this. Is there, was, there was an article I was reading that the news, like the Seattle Times and other news outlets, have to hyper-sensationalize uh, it because if they don't, people won't take it seriously and will actually get into more harm, like driving recklessly in the snow, assuming that, you know, you can drive without snow tires and chains and be perfectly fine. But at the same time, the sen- the sensationalization is a little ridiculous. So that's where we're at. Sam, uh, you need to give me like two of the snowpocalypse memes that you were mentioning earlier, because that's oh, where yeah. I thought this was going. Okay, no, no, there, but there have been some good memes that have come out of this. The best one, I think, was a picture of an empty bread shelf um, at a grocery store. All the grocery stores are totally empty right now because everyone's stocked up um, on Thursday night. And it was a picture of that, and it said, Captain's Log, day one, uh, morale is low and rations are lower. <laughs> um, and there was a great uh, Twitter feed by somebody, Dave, Daniel Silvermint, no idea who he is, but um, he documented snowpocalypse as it was happening. Um, starting a couple days ago in the evening and going all the way through uh, yesterday afternoon. But it was pretty great. He, he includes some, some things like, um, I don't know, uh, oh, they're buying antique stationary sets in case the email servers go down. Uh, they're <laughs> gluten-free bread lines. It's like Mad Max, but with Amazon Prime vans. You've got, uh, oh, they just ate Howard Schultz. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, there's, there's like 50 of these things. It's, it's excellent. Um, people are crocheting beanies as fast as possible, and the visibility is reduced to 30 feet. Good. It wearies the heart to see so many dead. <laughs> <laughs> so that's oh. Seattle. Um, yeah, I'm, we, you know, pray for the city. I don't know. It's, it's, it's bad. So, but we should, uh, we'll, we'll be good, I hope. We will yeah. rebuild. We will rebuild. <laughs> Uh, speaking of, uh, oh, man. of uh, I don't know, I can't do a transition. Steven, rant, go. Oh, I will rant. Uh, in a in similar vein to Sam's both in topic, but also in not necessarily a you know, negative rant or what have you, but with uh, the Seattle snowpocalypse upon us and whatnot, we had kind of a preamble to it uh, earlier this week, and uh, most, most co-workers worked from home, which is fine. And then uh, the next day, most of us ended up coming in because there was a demo. But also because of the implicit 
urge to for for people to come in if your coworkers are coming in then why aren't you coming in even though there's kind of an unwritten rule that it's fine to work from home it's okay to work from home unwritten and written sometimes uh to the point that one of my coworkers uh accidentally gotten a very thankfully very minor no um uh no one was hurt but still got into an accident and it's it's an interesting almost prisoner's dilemma sort of uh feel to working from home or calling in sick or what have you that a lot of companies find themselves in or a lot of employees find themselves in because if you don't if you don't show up you feel like your fellow employees are going to think poorly of you um so therefore you come in if, even if you're sick or what have you which will get other people sick but then people realize that you came in sick and came into work anyway so they feel obligated to come back uh, to come back in it kind of turns into this vicious cycle and my, my boss to his credit actually insisted that if if it's snowy or if you don't feel safe coming in or whatever you know, please don't come in and very much to his credit. And I'm, I'm certainly not trying to bash on him or anyone else in the company. Uh, I think it's more just our inherent competitiveness or fear of co- uh, competition or what have you that makes us want to come into work when even when it's not safe or even when we're sick or even if we'd be, be- much better off not coming in. Um, so it's just a, it's more of an observa- observation that it, there's a weird game theory that happens when it when it comes to uh, deciding to uh, stay home or uh, stay home and work or go into work. You know, this sounds like uh, like capitalism. I bet capitalism made this problem. <sighs> capitalism made the problem of having jobs. Made the problem of having jobs and having snow and yeah, also having cars. Snow and cars. You know, it's funny. As soon as, like, I, we're being ironic, and correctly so, but, like, a fully fleshed-out argument from, it just automatically appeared in my head, because I know how you would make that argument, and it's sad, and I don't want to have oh, this Oh, that's a legitimate power. argument that people make all the time. I know! I don't want to know that, though. It's, it's, ugh. Well, maybe it's, just a, maybe it's just a true argument. Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe you just don't uh, want to acknowledge the truth, you capitalist pig. Fake news. Because you're okay. benefiting from it. Do all right, you all right. hear the people sing? Uh, for my rant, uh, I uh, am, have, have been thinking about the worst states to live in award, or at least judged by news stories of them. And for a long, long time, the uh, undisputed ruler and eternal king of this category was Florida and, you know, the Florida man memes, which are all actual headlines from police reports that are all like, Florida man does such and such. Like, uh, I, I, I pulled like a bunch of examples, like Florida man with no arms arrested for stabbing tourist. Florida man robs bank to escape wife, ends up with house arrest. Florida man kills imaginary friend, turns turns himself in, takes world's saddest mugshot. Florida man gets tired of waiting in hospital, steals ambulance to drive home. And Florida man arrested breaking into jail to visit his friends, presumably all of the other people above. Uh, and this is mostly just an excuse to read these headlines, but Virginia's giving Florida a, a run for its money recently with the top four officials in the state government all in scandal for one, blackface and or wearing a KKK hood, two, alleged sexual assault, three, blackface again, and four, editing a yearbook that had blackface in it. And even better, at least one of those four released information about one of the other ones to sabotage their chance of taking this place. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. It's, it's full-on Game of Thrones house of cards going down, and basically, with the number of scandals... Every single person in Virginia is in the succession line with a like a something percent chance of becoming the uh, new governor <laughs> of the state. So, well done, Virginia and Florida. You 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 suck. All the other states feel better about themselves. Though. Yeah. The thing is, like, I didn't know that wearing blackface was that common of an occurrence. 
No. Like I just I didn't think it was. But apparently or maybe it isn't that common. And just it just so happens that like every single person to wear blackface in Virginia and Florida ended up in the top levels of state government at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I'm right there with you, Sam. I didn't know it was that kind. I don't see why it would be. It's not, how how recent are these photos? Like, they're yearbook photos. Like the 80s, all the 80s. 80s? Yep. Like, I can imagine, like, back in the 1940s when Jim Crow laws were still around, yeah, like, blatant racism was probably, you know, more common and accepted, but 80s? No. Anyway, we we live in much more Wilker times, um, and that's not always for the worse. But oh no, one one fun thing that I did learn in the course of getting these Florida Man uh, headlines is the reason that Florida has all of these crazy headlines that get you know captured in memes is because they have like super strong freedom of information stuff on the state level about police records. So the journalists get all of the police records, unlike in most states where they're protected, you know, so that like you're you're arrested for the crime, but they don't say like all, all of the crazy stuff that you also did. So the lesson of that is that there are actually crazy people all around us, um, but their records are just hidden and we don't know who they are. Whereas in Florida, they know who they are. So uh, are we are not safe. All actual Florida. We are all Florida man, if if only for uh, Freedom of Information Act law, uh, laws. So. There, but for the Freedom of Information Act laws. <laughs> but but for the privacy <laughs> of police records, go I. <laughs> J. Sui, Florida man. Uh, Florida man. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, I am uh, Florida man. Well, uh, uh, on 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 that note, I, I think we should bring this to a close. Uh, does anyone have we're a... We're never going to talk about no, nope. Uh, no. Does anyone have a uh, great quote uh, that they have on hand, or or shall we just uh, skedaddle out of here? I do indeed. Um, this one comes from uh, quite some time ago, Boethius. Uh, so he was arrested again? from what? What? Wait, last week again? Oh, last week was Socrates. What? Last week was Socrates? Last week was, was Boethius. No, last week was Socrates. It was Tomorrow's definitely Boethius. Start, We're gonna Virgil? check this. Yes. I messaged you that it was Boethius, and then I changed my mind. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. But was it the lady philosophy coming in to comfort her, comfort him, and then telling him he's going to die? Uh, I don't remember. I just remember because we, because remember we, it was a quote from Boethius, and then I said that Toby Mac said like the same thing. Oh, wait. oh yeah. Uh, there's no like the day to begin living virtuously is tomorrow or today or yeah, something. No, oh, really? Toby Mac. Definitely is. <laughs> Tomorrow's first day of the rest of your life. I, oh, I'm yeah, yeah, sure yeah. I cut that out of the podcast because I was embarrassed. But anyway, um, hey, sorry. Tony Mac has some decent-ish stuff. Uh, when he was DC Talk, he was better. But do your quote, and then let's get so, out of here. I mean, I could go with David Foster Wallace, but I'm trying to. I'm trying. Thank to, you for not. But but now his name know. has been mentioned. We got all the way to like the final <laughs> almost minute. Almost made it. We can take that out of post-production and be fine. And then my eyes fell upon David Foster Wallace, and I was—I almost—I almost was able to pass it up, but I had to at least mention his name. Go. But, uh, the quote comes from uh, Boethius, who was a political prisoner and uh, was sentenced to death in quite a uh, horrific way. And so, while he was in exile, uh, awaiting execution, the lady philosophy comes in to comfort him in his distress. Um, and one of the ways uh, she goes about this. Uh, it may sound familiar to some folks. Uh, the artist Banksy uh, said that you uh, 
die twice. The first time when you die and the last time, the second time when the last person thinks of you. He, uh, it, he is, whether or not he knows it, a student of Boethius who uh, heard the words from the Lady Philosophy, nay, ye all alike must lie forgotten. Tis not you that fame makes known. Fondly do ye deem life's little hour, lengthened by fame's mortal breath. There but waits you when this too is taken, at last a second death. So some uh, some cheery notes to end on, but it, I think it's important because a lot of the rhetoric um, that is used in our society, and after all, we do live in a society, uh, is leaving a legacy, making your impact, leaving your mark, et cetera, et cetera. And there is always a temptation to you know, erect monuments to our own permanence to try to fool ourselves into thinking that, you know, we will, we will endure, that our statue at least will endure longer than we will. And I think it's kind of an important check on our hubris to, to remember that not only will we die, but our legacy will die as well. Um, and so what else is there? Well, perhaps crafting ourselves into, to be the most virtuous person that we can be. Um, and, uh, then perhaps, uh, we, we will continue to be that virtuous, virtuous person, that person that we have uh, forge ourselves uh, when we reach yonder shore. All right. Uh, well, on that note, uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we will see you next time. Bye bye. So if Weberia, if, if, if Weber really is the zeitgeist of our power structures, then who is the zeitgeist of her philosophy? I just want to briefly comment um, that Weberia, the land of Weberian uh, ethics, uh, we all live in Weberia. Ooh, Weberia. I, I kind of like that, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like a, it's like a small, uh, Euro, like, Eastern European country, you know, like where petty dictators come from in movies. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and and in Weberia, everyone is a like Nietzschean, um, but unironically and uh, like fully serious. <laughs> and it's just like this, 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 and they all dress like Nietzsche too. So they all have like thick mustaches, look depressed, and just like kind of stalk around. Or I don't. I'm even thinking know. that all the men dress like Nietzsche and all the women dress like Ayn Rand. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> yes. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. That is. And there's just trains everywhere. Just trains. <laughs> 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 and, but but there's there's no crossings and like so it's, it's just always a race like if trains crash they crash you know it's just a, hey will the power man what are you gonna do which train is more powerful <laughs> which train can assert its uh, will over the rest uh okay well that's definitely going in the outro uh let's get back it to is. it